This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Eleni Jarkas, and we begin with the latest on Russia's war on Ukraine. At least eight people killed in the capital, Kyiv, after missile fire hit a shopping mall. The city's mayor says the building has been destroyed by fire. It's one of the most damaging strikes to hit the center of Kyiv since the war began. The mayor has announced a new curfew from 8 p.m. today, local time, until 7 a.m. on Wednesday. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian government has rejected Russia's demand to surrender the besieged southern city of Mariupol. Ukrainian's defense minister uh, praising the defenders of the city, saying, quote, today Mariupol is saving Kiev, Dnipro and Odessa. Everyone must understand this. This is after the Russian military bombed an art school in the city where about 400 people had been sheltering. And that's according to city officials. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky telling CNN he's open to negotiations with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. Take a listen. I am ready for negotiations with him. I was ready uh, um, over the last two years. And I think that I think that without negotiations, we cannot end this war. But if these attempts fail, that would mean that, that this is a third world war. Today, U.S. President Joe Biden will hold a call with the leaders of France, Germany, Italy and the U.K. And he's scheduled to attend a NATO summit in Belgium on Thursday and travel to Poland on Friday to meet with the country's president. Fred Pleiken has more on the attack on the shopping center in Kiev. This area of Kiev was hit overnight into Monday, and certainly the munition that was used here seems to be absolutely massive. If we go forward, what we can see over there is a mall and the parking lot of the mall where you can clearly see a gigantic impact crater right in the middle of that parking lot. Also, there's buildings around it, that tall building absolutely destroyed in that entire mall complex. And the buildings around here, a lot of them were badly damaged as well. What we're hearing uh, from the city council here in Kiev is they say that so far, they know of eight people who have been killed uh, in this uh, explosion and several buildings, of course, damaged, including a school and a kindergarten as well. What's not clear is what exactly the military objective of all of this may have been. There certainly doesn't seem to be any military infrastructure close to here, or at least we haven't seen any. Uh, and, and also, this appears to be very much a civilian area. One of the things that we found very remarkable here is we are currently on the 11th floor of a building that is you know, pretty far away from the explosion. But we found this piece of shrapnel. This piece of shrapnel we did not find that here on the front of the building. This went through this entire apartment and was then found uh, in the hallway. It went through the front door. And of course, this would have been extremely deadly for anybody who was in its path. The people who live here told us they bought this place about three months ago. It's a new building. Luckily, they weren't here when the explosion took place. But if we pan down, we can see the destruction that was brought by all of this. Obviously, uh, a lot of glass that was broken whole windows blown out and of course anybody who would have been laying in this bed in the bedroom uh, would have been in severe danger of, uh, of massive injuries and possibly death especially with so much shrapnel uh, flying around 
This is very much part of the current ongoing battle for Kiev. The U.S. and its allies say the Russians are not making much progress uh, in that battle and certainly increasingly using heavy weaponry that uh, every once in a while certainly does land in civilian areas. Fred Plaikin, CNN, Kiev, Ukraine. In the southern city of Mykolaiv, air raid sirens have sounded. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh says the heart of the city has been targeted and that Russia has been lashing out with exceptional violence. This is what the slow route of Russia in southern Ukraine looks like. Kiev's forces are pushing close to Kherson, the first city the Kremlin took. Here, so many people being evacuated day by day. And the eerie quiet, in contrast to these impacts we see all around in the fields, just constant barrage over the past days. The bus is the last way out of here, going from door to what is left of every door. The village of Posad Pokrovsky has been Ukraine's last position for days, and so this is what Russia left of it. The noise is the village gas main leaking furiously. Putin's war of annihilation was sure not to overlook this school, its front torn off by a missile. It is hard to imagine life returning here even when the shelling stops, which just now, it does not. We run down for cover. The Marines here are mobile, pushing forwards where they can. Kherson's nearby airport, their prize. Now we have a little mission to to kill the mother Daniel is a former Lebanese soldier working in TV, married to a Ukrainian. Uh, Two weeks ago, this place had life. And now, nothing. The bus has filled with anyone left who wants to leave. Anyone who can move themselves. We are asked to take those who cannot. And who remember the last time war came to Europe. As we leave, shelling hits the village. It had become a deathbed, riddled with cluster munition mines, this man said. Over days, the road out of there has been fought over. It's pockmarked concrete lined with these tiny, peaceful worlds ripped open. This woman was in Poland when Russians took her hometown, Kherson, where her children are. Nikolai can't really hear the blast at his age but sent his wife to live with his daughter in the city. He has stayed to protect whatever they have left.
Shelling hits the road out again. And we drive past the earth Putin's shells have happily scorched as his army slowly loses whatever ground here it gained, Ukraine's guns pushing them back. But Moscow imposes a cost. These barracks, torn in two, reduced to rubble by missile strikes that killed dozens of Ukrainian soldiers, some as they slept Friday morning, in one of the worst known losses of the war. This trauma unit struggles with some of the 40 injured. One soldier asking for his friends by name. Not all injuries involve blood. This soldier was in bed on the third floor when the blast hit and he found himself on the second with both legs smashed, losing consciousness. That night, the Kremlin's blunt force hits another target around Mykolaiv. Moscow may be losing ground here, but does all it can to crush and stifle what it cannot have. Important reporting there from Nick Payson Walsh, showing not only the devastation and the destruction of infrastructure, but also the heartbreak, the trauma and the sacrifices, uh, but also importantly, the resolve uh, by the Ukrainian military. We'll be bringing you more live coverage from Ukraine uh, a little later. But first, I want to turn our attention to what the markets are doing. And we've had a cautious start to the trading week as global investors monitor the latest headlines from Ukraine. U.S. futures are mostly lower and European shares mixed after last week's gains. News that Ukraine and Russian negotiators are still far apart on a ceasefire agreement is, of course, weighing on sentiment. You can see a mixed picture right now in the Dow futures and in terms of what Europe is doing. But oil is the big one and is on the rebound after a sharp pullback last week. European leaders are set to discuss new sanctions on Russia that could intensify the global energy crunch. You can see their Brent crude sitting at $112. We've got Anna Stewart joining me now. Anna, it's just been such an incredible roller coaster ride when it comes to the Brent crude price. And one needs to wonder how much of this is speculation, how much of this is really fundamentals. And then if we start to talk about EU sanctions, that could definitely mean a bigger portion of Russian oil out of the market. And I think that is why we're possibly seeing such a big reaction uh, on the oil price today as EU foreign ministers have gathered in Brussels to meet. And this is very much on the table for discussion. Now, already the EU have said that they're going to cut their reliance on Russian gas by two thirds this year. They want to cut their dependence on Russian oil, gas uh, and coal completely over the next five years. A much bigger time frame, of course, than the UK or the US. But given their reliance on Russian energy, that was already uh, quite an impressive sort of target. But we could now see them go further still. Um, Here you can hear from the EU foreign minister of uh, Lithuania, who on arrival uh, said this. I think it is unavoidable to start talking about the energy sector, and uh, we definitely can talk about uh, about oil. 
because uh, it is the biggest revenue to uh, to Russian uh, Russian budget, and uh, also it's quite easily replaceable because of our infrastructure and multiple suppliers existent. Now, that is brave talk, and I'm not sure how easily replaceable it would be. I mean, just to give you an idea, with Lithuania, um, in 2019, they got 63% of all of their oil imports from Russia, and oil accounts for over 50% of their overall energy consumption mix. Um, it is not easy. But in a way, Eleni, we're already kind of seeing some sort of embargo on Russian oil if you look at how much is not being sold on the market. And the huge discount, actually, that Russian oil is now trading at uh, today is about 30 $30 a barrel cheaper than Brent. The IEA warned last week that Russia may actually be forced to cut back oil production as a result of this by around 30% next month. Anna Stewart, great to see you. Thank you so much for that analysis. And uh, we're now going back to Ukraine. Um, and of course, we've been seeing some devastating new photographs and pictures um, of some of the new attacks in Kyiv in particular. We've got Phil Black joining us now. He's in Lviv. Phil, it's, you know, seeing, you know, from the start of this war, we saw hospitals targeted. Uh, we saw kindergartens targeted, theatres, malls. What more do we know about the latest attacks and what this means in terms of Putin's military strategy? Eleni, so this was a strike on a shopping mall in, in Kiev uh, late last night, a significant blast, and, and one where uh, the impact had an, it, it, it also was felt in surrounding buildings and homes. Um, pretty devastating, really, with at least eight people uh, killed. Now, CNN team on the ground this morning says there is no evidence there that this is a military site or that it's been used for military purposes in any way. So we don't know whether this was deliberately targeted, and of course the fact that it's not or may not have been used for military purpose, does not mean that it wasn't d deliberately targeted because, as you touch on there, we have seen many times in this conflict so far Russian forces hitting clearly civilian targets. The purpose here is unclear, but the general analysis still suggests that Kiev remains Russia's primary military goal. It wanted to take the city quickly. It failed to do so. And so now its forces are preparing for what appears to be a much longer assault on that city. Eleni. Phil, I mean, looking at some of the images from Mariupol, hearing what people have gone through in that city. Three weeks ago, we were talking about a really strong port city. And now Putin is saying, you've got to leave. Um, and we don't know what the next move will be by the Russian military. What is, what is the potential of more devastation if civilians don't heed that call? Well, it would appear to be great because for the moment the siege continues, the blockade continues, the bombardment continues. And from what we hear on the ground there, it is constant. It is around the clock. So the suffering is great because there are hundreds of thousands of people sheltering, cowering wherever they can, uh, often in basements, many still in their homes, sometimes together in bigger buildings. And they have very little food, very little water, no real source of warmth in, in very cold conditions. And of course, as I say, the bombardment from the air, land and even the Russian Navy continues without any real sense of a break. Overnight, we've had this offer, you could say an ultimatum from Russia uh, for the Ukrainian defenders inside that city to, to put down their arms to stop fighting. And they would supposedly be allowed to leave if they hand over the city. But that has been uh, rejected. So that does mean the siege continues. But 
it appears that the government here believes that this suffering uh, that people are enduring there is not for nothing. The Ministry of Defence, the Minister of Defence, I should say, has said today that he believes that the people in Mariupol, the people defending it, the people that are enduring this bombardment, they are also saving lives in other parts of Ukraine, tens of thousands of lives. They are still defending other big cities, uh, notably Odessa, uh, Dnipro, even Kiev, because obviously if Russian forces were freed up in Mariupol, they would then be able to turn their attention, their firepower to those other cities. So for the moment, as I say, the siege continues without any obvious end in sight. Russia, having had its offer uh, or its, its ultimatum turned down, now has two clear options. It can try and take the city uh, in, a, in an urban street battle, but that would be costly and difficult. So I, I think the expectation is that it will continue to bombard the city in the hope that it will break the will of the people, break the defence that is taking place there, and they will be able to take that city relatively easy in terms of effort from their own forces. Yeah. All right, Phil, thank you very much. I mean, hearing about uh, some of the resolve by the Ukrainian military and civilians, it is incredible to just see uh, just how steadfast they are in terms of holding ground. So thank you very much for your reporting live from Lviv. I'd like to now take a look at the stories making headlines around the world. A Boeing 737 carrying 132 people made a rapid descent before crashing in southeastern China earlier today. This is important to note. Aviation officials say it was not the widely criticized 737 MAX that was involved. Will Ripley in Taipei has the latest developments for us. Will, uh, great to see you. What more do we know about this crash? Yeah, Lainey, it's very important to note this was a 737-800. These are some of the most widely used, uh, you know, narrow body aircraft in the world. And uh, Boeing, uh, just like China Eastern Airlines, has now uh, turned its website black and white uh, as the investigation into this crash continues. You talked about that rapid descent. to go from 25,000 feet down to less than 3,000 feet in less in under two minutes uh, with a slight break uh, around 10,000 feet where it seemed as if the plane started to level off, but then it just plunged back down. Uh, that's certainly, um, it, it's still too soon to say what that would indicate. We have to leave that to the flight investigators, but undoubtedly terrifying terrifying moments uh, for a plane to descend that quickly uh, for the 132 people on board, 123 passengers, nine crew members. Um, And then if you look at the videos that people have shared on social media that have been reported in Chinese state media, you see uh, the Guangxi region, which is very heavily uh, forested and mountainous in the area where this plane went down, makes it very difficult for rescue teams to reach the site. Uh, But there were huge plumes of smoke. On some of the videos, you could hear explosions um, and you could see flames. And uh, the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, in an unusually swift uh, response and public statement, uh, you know, responding to this, basically saying that this is President Xi of China saying he's shocked, uh, calling for a full investigation, deploying rescue teams to this area. So when you have now the central government in Beijing uh, essentially calling the shots from President Xi down, that shows just how seriously China is taking this crash. And they have good reason to do that, Eleni, because China has not had a fatal uh, air disaster since 2010. The last time that somebody died in a plane crash in China uh, was was more than a decade ago when 44 people were killed uh, when a plane uh, went uh, off the runway, kind of overshot the runway. Uh, This situation, if you look at the early signs, if you look at that rapid, rapid descent, uh, 
terrifying descent towards these mountains and then you look at the aftermath and yeah. reports even of pieces of wreckage on the ground it certainly paints a really really sad uh, picture uh, a devastating picture for the for the families of those 132 people right now who are waiting for answers wondering what happened did anyone survive uh, all of those questions including what caused this still too soon to know Eleni. absolutely yeah terrifying absolutely will ripley thank you so much for bringing us up to speed on that story Morad Tabaz, a 66-year-old British Iranian, has been sent back to jail in Tehran. That's despite a deal that was struck between the UK and Tehran that saw Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe and another British Iranian released from jail last week. Tabaz, who is also a U.S. citizen, spent 48 hours under house arrest before being taken back to prison. Nada Bashir joins me now. Uh, Nada, this is the first time we actually heard from Nazanin Zakari Ratcliffe in that press conference, and it was really fascinating uh, to hear about some of her experience. She was actually saying she didn't want to talk about what happened to her specifically, but she importantly had said that, you know, the, the meaning of freedom really has no meaning unless everyone is released. And importantly, she also said that it is vital to ensure that lives are not put at risk because of political reasons. Yeah, absolutely, Eleni. And it was interesting, actually, that she and her husband, Richard, were speaking alongside Roxanne, the eldest daughter of Morad Tabaz. She invited her uh, to join them at this press conference, the first time she's spoken since she was released from detention after six years, to really highlight that issue, that there are still many others. She said that while her name is now widely known, there are so many others that can't be forgotten, left in detention in Iran. And Morad's daughter gave that really emotional uh, statement to the press there, saying that she wasn't, uh, she was surprised, she was taken aback that he was uh, returned to prison after briefly being put on furlough in Iran. So that, of course, a key message being sent there by, by Nazanin. But as you mentioned there, it is the first time we've heard from her since her six-year detention, speaking alongside her husband, Richard, and the UK lawmaker, Tulip Sadiq, who has campaigned for her release for the past six years, her daughter, Gabriella, in the front row. And she, she did give thanks to the numerous people who have campaigned for her, to her family, the legal professionals, the uh, medical staff in Tehran who looked after her while she was in detention. But she also flagged that, as you said, there are so many others still remaining there. And she actually questioned whether or not the British government had done enough to secure her release over the past six years. Take a listen. was told many, many times that, oh, we're going to get you home. That never happened. So there was a time that I felt like, do you know what? I'm like, no, I'm not even going to trust you because I've been told many, many times that I'm going to be taken home. But that never happened. I mean, how many foreign secretaries does it take for someone to come out? Five. It should have been one of them eventually. So now here we are. What's happened now should have happened six years ago. And that really is the sentiment that we've heard continuously from those campaigning for Nazanin's release. Her husband, Richard, actually did give thanks to the government during that press conference. And Nazanin made the point of actually saying, actually, no, uh, there should have been more done to secure her release. And she did highlight uh, the issue of a decades old multi-million dollar debt owed to Iran by the UK. Now, according to Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, that debt has now been settled. And when she was asked by a journalist whether she felt that those two issues were linked, whether or not her freedom was dependent on that debt being paid by the British government, she said, yes, yes, indeed it is. And that is exactly what her husband has been saying for the last six years, describing Nazanin as a pawn being used by the Iranian regime to put pressure on the British government. Now we know that a foreign uh, affairs committee hearing has is going to be called by Tulip Sadiq to really get to the bottom of why it took so long to secure Nazanin's freedom. Eleni?
Nada Bashir, thank you very much. Great to have you on the show. We're going to a short break and I'll have more news right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Eleni Jarkas. Now, the leaders of NATO member nations, France, Italy, German, the, Germany, the US and the UK, are set to speak by telephone today on the crisis in Ukraine. All of this ahead of high-stakes NATO and European Council summits later this week. NATO head Jens Stoltenberg says Thursday's meeting of the organization's 30 member nations will be an extraordinary summit, and that's to discuss the ongoing response to the war. Stoltenberg said in a tweet that the meeting will address, quote, further strengthening NATO's deterrence and defense. He says at this critical time, North America and Europe must continue to stand together. Ivor Dolder joins me now. He is a former U.S. ambassador to NATO. Ivor, great to have you with us. Firstly, what are you expecting from this telephone call between some of the most powerful NATO members today? Well, I think other than uh, reaffirming that everyone does, in fact, stand together, I think there are a number of issues that uh, will be addressed in this call and then later on at both NATO uh, and EU and G7 summits. Uh, one is what more sanctions uh, can we look at in order to increase the pressure on Vladimir Putin? Uh, secondly, uh, what more can be done to help the Ukrainians uh, to defend themselves? The U.S. has sent a large package of weaponry uh, but the war is going on and more weapons are necessary for the Ukrainians to defend themselves. And then third, I think uh, at the beginning of a discussion is starting on, on what, what uh, NATO might want to think about doing should Vladimir Putin escalate further. He's already uh, escalated by bombing cities. Uh, he may well go further uh, by considering the possibility of using chemical agents or biological agents or going after industrial facilities or even, as he has threatened in the past, uh, using nuclear weapons. NATO needs to be prepared for this. It needs to figure out what it would do in response, and it needs to communicate that to Vladimir Putin to tell him that if he does escalate, there are consequences. I can't believe that in our lifetime we're talking about the possibility of uh, use of nuclear weapons. What kind of probabilities are you factoring in right now? And I guess we've heard this from Zelensky, we've heard this from Biden, that this could you know, eventually escalate to World War III. Is that your prognosis as well? What, what would happen if, if nuclear comes into play? Well, it's certainly not my prognosis. We want to do everything possible to prevent it. But we are dealing with a nuclear power that is stuck militarily uh, in a stalemate that it never thought it was going to go in. It can try to sue for peace. Uh, that's not Vladimir Putin's uh, normal way of operating. He's a person who, when uh, in a corner, is likely to lash out rather than uh, sit down. Uh, the U.S. intelligence community has said that he's likely to double down. So we have to think about uh, the unthinkable. Uh, it's part of the world, unfortunately, that we are living in and to now. It's highly unlikely that it will happen, but we need to be prepared for it. And we actually need to tell Vladimir Putin it's very, very important that he not uh, consider this option. As to a response, I think if we're going down this road, then making sure that Vladimir Putin gets defeated in Ukraine by directly uh, engaging NATO forces uh, on behest of the Ukrainian forces will be necessary. Uh, you can't live in a world in which chemical or biological agents are used or nuclear weapons are used uh, and countries get away with it. 
that's not the world we want to live in. That's the world we need to Do you think that NATO should get involved at this moment in time? Do you think NATO should get involved right now? Not yet. Not yet. I think where the president uh, Biden has been and others uh, to make this uh, about uh, defending, uh, helping uh, Ukraine to defend itself is right. Um, But we also need to send a clear message that the calculation of whether or not we intervene uh, uh, should uh, these kinds of weapons be used is going to be changed. So Ivo, that's, I, I, I think, want to. We're running out of time, but Ivo, I want to ask you this. You said February 24th, the moment the world changed in a pretty fundamental way. Tell me how. How is this going to impact everyone? Well, the, the, we, we moved away from a world in which uh, we would engage and cooperate with a country like Russia to one where we confront and contain a country like Russia. It's a fundamental difference. And it really sets the world up between uh, the advanced democracies on the one hand, which have used, as we have seen, uh, sanctions and, and significant military capabilities against those who are, uh, uh, who are uh, trying to undermine democracy, whether that's in Russia or China or other countries. We see a more divided world. Uh, less uh, cooperative uh, in in the effort to defend uh, democracy and freedom uh, that is now being uh, attacked uh, in Ukraine directly and in other parts of the world indirectly. Ambassador, thank you very much for your insights. Great to have you on the show. That was Ivo Dolder, former U.S. ambassador to NATO. We're going to a short break and I'll have more news right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says he's ready for negotiations with Russian President Vladimir Putin. During an interview with CNN's Fried Zakaria, Zelensky warned, if talks fail, it would mean a third world war. Nearly four weeks after Russian forces invaded, the former CIA director David Petraeus told CNN the war is at a stalemate. Ukraine says at least eight people were killed after a missile destroyed a shopping mall in Kyiv. It was one of the most damaging attacks on the city since the war began. CNN military analyst and retired U.S. Army Major General James Spider Marks joins me now. Really good to have you on, sir. Um, I'm sure you're watching very closely with regards to all the attacks that we're seeing, the indiscriminate attacks that you're seeing. Does this give you any sense of the moves that uh, Vladimir Putin and his military might be taking? And we've got to keep in mind that there are talks happening on the sidelines. Not many people are taking those seriously. But, I mean, in terms of the military prognosis, what are you looking at? Well, great question. What we've seen from the outset is a Russian military that's been exposed as incompetent, not capable of doing what I would call a com- combined arms fire and maneuver. I mean, it's absolutely egregious. If you're evaluating a military, these guys get a C minus to a D. They're not doing anything they should. They're violating the principles of war. They're not maneuvering. They haven't identified the enemy, the Ukrainians. In other words, the Russian military right now is completely stumbling and they have culminated. What that means is they've put all their chips that were around Ukraine. They've put all those chips in the middle of the table. They're pushing toward Kiev and Kharkiv and down around the Black Sea. And the only success is a brutal assault against Mariupol where they've achieved no military objectives other than to level what had been a beautiful port city just three weeks ago. Uh, And now they're trying to create this land bridge from the Donbass area all the way down to Odessa. This is a military that right now is desperate. And so you see the digging in, excuse me, they're going on the defensive. 
they are using their artillery and rockets simply to create terror and havoc and great amounts of destruction and rubble throughout the country. I mean, it really is a military that's in very, very bad shape, which is great news for the Ukrainians. And they are now, the Ukrainians, are now taking advantage of that hesitation on the part of the Russians. Absolutely. And so many interesting points there. I want to ask you about the fact that they've relied on cruise missiles to this point. And then it seems like they are they moving to hypersonic missiles? And is this because they're showing their might and what they have? Or is this because they're running out of cruise missiles? I mean, what are you reading into this? Yeah, that's a, <clears throat> again, excuse me, that's a great question. Truly, we don't know how many hypersonics they have in their inventory. The fact that they're using them is a very strong signal, which is the Russians have them else either has them or do they haven't used them before so this is show and tell from the russian perspective and it's a very strong message to the united states which is we've got them you don't so stand back the the challenge with the hypersonics and what you're seeing with dumb munitions like artillery and rockets is that they don't have to confront the enemy they're trying to reduce and in fact they're not going after military units they're going after civilian populations that's the brutality of this thing. It's illogical in terms of military objectives. Yeah. Um, the, the one thing that sort of sticks out for me and when we're having these conversations is we know Putin is, is this man who doesn't want to accept defeat. And this is what I find fascinating is at what point is he going to think about withdrawing? And when he's incurring failures like we've seen um, and you've got a military with low morale, are you worried about his next move? He's mentioned nuclear before. Is, is this something that's on your radar as a possibility? Yeah, very much so. That's the big concern. That's the wild card that's over here because we can't get into the head of Putin. I mean, nobody effectively can get between his ears and figure out what motivates him. Again, this seems like an illogical military operation. If he were to win Ukraine, what does winning look like? He's got a damaged, beautiful country its agricultural capability is going to be reduced significantly. The economy is going to be in the crapper. You're going to have a, city, a population of 40 plus million that hate you, and you're going to try to establish some degree of governance. It makes no sense at all. So the level of desperation is the big concern. So he's mentioned nukes. Clearly, he has said, you know, my nukes are on high alert. Frankly, everybody who has nukes have them on high alert. So that's no big news. But the fact that he mentioned them and the fact that he has used chemical weapons before, we've seen that in Syria and we've seen that against individuals. You know, he did that a couple of years ago in London. I mean, there's no hesitation on his part to go down that path. So what are the precur precursors or indications and warnings of his use? We've got to be our intelligence capacity and intelligence sharing with the Ukrainians and certainly our NATO partners has really got to be focused in on that potentiality. It is very, very concerning when a dog's in the corner and that dog feel like feels like it's being abused, it's going to lash out. That's where we may be with Putin right now. Absolutely. So, Major General, you know, one important thing is that he is trying to chip away at uh, average Ukrainians, at the most vulnerable pregnant women and newborn babies. But we've seen an incredible resilience coming through, and this is why he's incurring losses. Are you feeling confident about the capabilities of the Ukrainian military right now? And Zelensky last week said, we need more advanced uh, weaponry. And of course, the big question in terms of one of the advantages that Putin has right now is he is able to attack via the air. 
Right. When you when you have a gap between the will to resist, which is what the Ukrainians are demonstrating, and their capacity, which is not equal to their will, you've got a, you've got a gap, which is really a concern. The Ukrainians have done masterfully with what they have. Russia, let's be frank, just has more resources than the Ukrainians. And oh, by the way, the Russians have not demonstrated any desire, either in their past, past history, and as Soviets, and what they've been doing in Ukraine to adhere to any type of discrimination in their fire or rules of engagement. That's the big time concern. The Ukrainians are doing a wonderful job and really need to take advantage of this tactical inflection point, which is Russians going on the defensive, trying to get their act together, and the Ukrainians feel bolstered by what they see with the capacity that they have, not only being provided by NATO, but their great intrinsic will and desire to take it to the Russians. They need to act now so that they can turn the tide and really start pushing some of these Russians, take the offensive, start pushing a number of these Russian forces back. I mean, it's a great window of opportunity. They realize it and they're going to exploit it. Major General, I can't thank you enough for your analysis. Thank you very much for sharing your insights with us. Great to have you on the show. You bet. And still to come, lots of talk of cyber attacks by Russia before the invasion, but have they actually taken place? A cybersecurity expert will give us a sense of the situation and U.S. vulnerabilities. Russia's invasion has raised fears of large-scale cyber attacks on Ukraine and its allies, including the United States. So far, experts say those fears have not materialized, and they say that while Russia has the capability to conduct an impactful cyber attack in the U.S., the prospects for that are low. Still, the U.S. has been expanding its cybersecurity, particularly in the energy sector, as vulnerabilities remain significant. Joining us now is George Crudes, the CEO and co-founder of CrowdStrike, the U.S. cybersecurity firm. George, really great to have you with us. Here's the reality. Russia has been sort of testing the vulnerabilities in the United States and in Europe and has successfully been able to break through firewalls in the energy sector um, quite a few times over the past few years, particularly in the U.S., Is there a sense that it could be at some point a big risk? I know that it's not imminent, but is everyone on high alert? It's always going to be a risk. And what uh, viewers have to understand is that Russia and other nation states are continually testing and probing and gaining access to infrastructure around the globe. It doesn't mean that they're activating it at this point, but they're always looking to maintain access. And at the appropriate time, they could activate it either to steal information or to implement a devastating attack that could impact critical infrastructure, energy, financial services, et cetera. Okay, so we know that uh, Russia was sort of, you know, doing some micro cyber attacks prior to the war, which was quite interesting. You know, w- when these attacks happen the, at, at the micro level, is it, in, is it a, 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 I guess, a way to test the capabilities so that they, when they do decide they want to escalate the war to a different level, they're ready to go? Well, there's two types of attacks. One, one is known and one is unknown. And when you see a denial of service attack, obviously that's pretty easy to understand that you're under attack. And that sends a message. And uh, there's various norms and, and uh, uh, mores, if you will, that happen in cyberspace as well as in the kinetic world. And from that standpoint, someone wanted to send a message. 
what's more troubling is the level of access that happens behind the scenes that people don't know about, right? And and they just lay in wait. We saw that with some of the attacks uh, in uh, 2020 uh, and 2021 with uh, supply chain attacks. And, and those can be very devastating because once they're activated, they're broad scale attacks and uh, they can really leave a lot of organizations scrambling. So again, the, the, the folks that are in the tanks are not the cyber teams that are continually uh, probing and uh, I- intruding into these organizations. And that's just an ongoing effort. And at the right time, they will look to activate yeah. uh, those particular units, uh, either to gather information or to implement a destructive attack. Okay, so in terms of vulnerabilities, are you concerned? I'm always concerned because there's a level of vulnerability that's out there, uh, whether it's in commercial software that you buy off the shelf or in open source software, uh, which is used extensively across the Internet. In fact, what we've seen over the last week is something called protestware. And that is um, some damaging and non-damaging code put into open source projects specifically focused on organizations in Russia and Belarus. Um, now, they are making a statement, and that falls under what we would call hacktivism, but the reality is there's so much open source software that is used to drive the internet that uh, any number of malicious pieces of code can be put into these and be very hard to find, and then could be activated at some point in the future. So yes, we're absolutely concerned about these vulnerabilities. Interesting. So, I mean, I wanted to ask you about Anonymous, the hacktivists that are trying to send information in Russia that, of course, has been completely blocked by, by Vladimir Putin. What do you make mm-hmm. of sort of the efforts to try and break through the firewalls there? Well, it's interesting because uh, just to step back for a moment, we categorize the hacking groups into nation state, e-crime and hacktivism. And hacktivism sort of bumps along depending on the geopolitical landscape in terms of its activity. Obviously, it's ramped up given what's happening uh, in, this, in this devastating war, uh, in this sad war. And at the end of the day, it's going to take uh, folks, individuals, whether they are part of a group or not, to be able to get this information in and out of Russia to allow them to understand really what's happening in this world, given the fact that social media is shut down, that the press is, is totally controlled at this point. And um, a big part of the cyber war is not just getting into a computer, it's also controlling the message. It's controlling what happens on social media. It's amplifying the troll farms. It's uh, creating deep fake videos and messages, which we've seen over the last week. And that's all part of the cyber uh, war landscape, if you will. And it's being put uh, you know, to full effect at the moment. George Cruz, thank you very much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Much appreciated. We're Thanks. going to go to a short break. And when we return, we'll take a look at how some African leaders have responded to the war in Ukraine. Stay with us. Welcome back. In one positive development, about half of the staff that has been working at the Chernobyl nuclear plant basically since the war began has been able to rotate out and return home. The International Atomic Energy Agency says those employees had been working nonstop at the radioactive waste facilities for more than three weeks when Russian forces seized the site. Those workers have now been relieved by Ukrainian staffers. The IAEA is hopeful that the rest of the staff can rotate out soon. Now, Ukraine's neighbors are doing their best to help the flood of refugees crossing their borders. In Romania, emergency workers are welcoming them with hot meals and toys for the children. Most Ukrainians are fleeing to Poland, Romania, Moldova. 
Hungary and Slovakia. The UN says about 10 million Ukrainians have been forced to leave their homes. And that includes more than 3.3 million who have fled Ukraine. And finally, remember Amelia, the little girl who sang the Ukrainian version of Let It Go from the movie Frozen in Kyiv in a bomb shelter a few weeks ago? Well, thankfully, she's now safe in Poland. On Sunday, she opened a charity concert called Together for Ukraine, organized to fund aid for Ukraine. She sang the Ukrainian national anthem. How brave. Imagine uh, a full stadium full of people and singing from a small bunker to a full stadium. Seven-year-old Amelia offering grace and hope. And I think it's a star in the making. Well, that's it for the show. I'm Eleni Jarkos. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.